Hi, I'm Janina. Welcome to the first episode of Bad Seeds, Kids Who Kill. I am planning on setting up a Patreon for this podcast, and um, I might set up an email too, and a Twitter, and all of that stuff. But before I dive into all of that, I just wanted to start the process, and my cat just jumped off of the condo that I have for her. Um, so I want to begin this podcast with, uh, the case of James Bulger and this happened, this happened in England. And I just want to set up before I begin, I just want to start with a warning that, um, this does contain the murder of a two year old boy by two 10 year old boys. And, um, if that's something that disturbs you, then I would skip out on this one. Um, I know that you've probably clicked on this episode expecting something like this, but I know that it can get really dicey when there's a murder of a young child involved. So anyway, without further ado, I shall now begin. So James Bulger, or Bulger, as I was saying, he was two years old when Robert Thompson and John Venables lured him from his mother's side into his death. And Robert and John were 10 years old. So I'm going to start first with painting a picture of Robert Thompson and John Venables so that you can kind of get in a little bit of an insight into um, partly why I think the murders were committed um, because of the, the life that these two had. I don't think, I don't think that Robert Thompson especially had much of a chance and I can't say exactly what it was what it is about John Venables that um, made him do this. But I think he was also under the influence of Robert Thompson, who was a force. So I'm just talking around the history here. So let me, let me start. So Robert Thompson was born on August 23rd, 1982. And he was the fifth child of seven brothers. I just feel that that's very important to point out, and it does come up later. And um, they lived, the family lived in Walton, England. Uh, John Venables does not live there at this point in time. He lives in Maryside, uh, but they will connect later on a very, I think, at 10 years old, actually, they do actually connect before the murder happens. And Walton wasn't really, you know, it wasn't this spectacular, thriving metropolis. Um, the documentary that I watched, it kind of looked a little sad and maybe a little run down. Um, but anyway, so... Robert's mother, Anne, married Robert's father, who was also named Robert, so I'll just refer to him as Robert Sr. She married him when she was 18 years old, and he was an alcoholic, and he was an abusive one. He would beat the boys in front of Anne and had once caused her to suffer a, a miscarriage when he jammed her into a door during a, during a beating. And 
According to Robert, little Robert, his father took pleasure in beating her in front of them. And then Anne, in turn, would beat the boys with sticks and belts. Before Robert Sr., Anne had grown up in a violent home herself and had married and had married Robert Sr. so young because she was looking for a way to escape her abusive father. And interesting to note, Robert Sr., not surprisingly, came from a violent home as well and was beaten by his older brothers. So already we're starting uh, out the gate with um, a lot of abuse happening. Um, so Robert Jr., little Robert, w was known to be a troublemaker, along with all of his si siblings, pretty much. He tried his best to be a good son to his mother, and he would do things like help her with dinner, and also he would help her, just, just the fire truck going by, it's kind of annoying, um, he would help her with dinner, and he would help her with the seventh child, the last child, Ben. And um, his teachers would say that little Robert was often shy and quiet, but also manipulative with some of his peers. He couldn't read well and was quoted as saying, I can't read hard words. He was described as sly. And during the trial of the murder, he was said to be sarcastic and hateful, old and detached. Between him and John Venables, he was the, quote, cool and collected one, and he did not show much remorse for what he did to James Bulger, and it would be a few years until he actually expressed any kind of remorse for it. And he also uh, lied with ease. Now, I listened to, when I watched the documentary, you you were given a chance to listen to recordings of um, Robert and John talking to the authorities about what happened. And it took a while for the, for the boys to crack. And the both of them lied about each other and blamed the other person. So I'm just throwing that out there. So Robert didn't have a lot of friends and he just hung out with, with one of his older brothers and a couple kids from the neighborhood. And it was noted that Robert was kind of a pain in the ass while he was at school. He liked to taunt the other kids until they chased him. And he skipped school like all the time. But he wasn't really a troublemaker in class, just, you know, on the rec at recess. However, teachers didn't really expect a lot out of him, probably because, you know, he was skipping all the time. And plus, because of the rough family life that he was coming from. Experts described him as an urban feral child, and classmates called him chubby because of his round cherub face, and they would make fun of him for sucking his thumb, which was something that he did for a very long time. And I, it sounded to me when I was reading it that it was 
something he did uh, when he was when he had something on his mind, and I think it was also a self-soothing mechanism. So just to paint a further picture of Robert's home life, Robert told of an incident with his father where his dad accused him of stealing chocolate Christmas tree decorations and made him strip naked. He said, as I stood there naked, he took hold of my penis. He said, if you don't tell me where they are, I'm going to cut it off. So, you know, not the best um, influence for Robert Thompson Jr. When Robert Sr. left the family in 1988, Anne, his wife, 33, now 34 years old, plummeted into alcoholism and would arrive at the pub at 11 a.m. and stay there until a neighbor would call the police to go get her because the kids got home from school and were locked out of their house. And the neighbors would see them just hanging outside of the house, not being able to get in. And you can imagine that, you know, this is England. So in the wintertime, it's chilly. Um, Anne was a deeply depressed and deeply unhappy person. And considering all that she had been through, I totally get it. Um, and she did attempt suicide a few times over the years, but she never succeeded. And you would think that with all this abuse going on in the house, that it would have brought all the brothers together. No, it did the opposite. They all turned on each other and it became a case of the boys beating, the older boys beating on the younger boys. And so there's seven of them. So that that's a lot of abuse. And now you have Robert who has four older siblings. So he's getting a lot of the brunt of the abuse. Um, so a little bit about the Robert's brothers. So one brother was placed in child protective services. I don't understand. I couldn't find anything on why the others were not. Um, but he was put in child protective services. Another sibling became a thief and took Robert along with him. One brother became an arsonist, and it was suspected that he was also sexually abusing young children, and that Robert may have been a victim of that. Another brother threatened teachers with violence. One brother went on to stay in a voluntary care center after one of his brothers tried to stab him. Like, he literally left the house and went to one of these care centers and surrendered himself. He was let go after a year, and when he returned home, he attempted suicide so he could be sent back. Unfortunately, he, his attempt was successful, so he didn't get a chance. When one of the eldest brothers had to babysit the youngest, they would lock them in the pigeon shed. I had no idea that there were even such a thing that there was such a thing called a pigeon shed. I can imagine that it houses pigeons, but why? I don't get that, but I don't have to get that. It's fine. 
So needless to say, social workers and police knew all about this family. They were all over this family. They were always the first house the cops went to when something bad happened. And when he was arrested for James's murder, Robert was quoted as saying, it's always our family that gets the blame. And so none of the, none of the family trusted the authorities and they didn't trust any of the social workers and they definitely didn't trust any of the, of the police. Robert tried to act tough. He did act tough, but he always, he exhibited childish tendencies and he was teased for it. And John teased him for playing with girls and being girlish himself. And, um, I think that Robert, well, it's postulated that Robert saw in James, the child he had never been allowed to be because you, you got to figure this kid's fending for himself every day and he doesn't really get to just relax and be a kid if he has to defend himself all the time. And he also liked to just like take off in the middle of the night and just roam the neighborhood. And to stop him from doing that, his mother would hide his shoes. So I'm not, okay, I am going to say it. I think she was a super bad mom and um, she didn't have any control over herself and she didn't have control over her kids. And while I do feel sorry for the Anne that got herself in a bad situation with a bad man, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the mom that didn't get herself together and take care of her kids while they were running wild and getting themselves into serious trouble. Um, so, Robert had a younger brother and he was two years younger than him and his name was Ryan. And, um, he was kind of ambivalent about Ryan, even though he was, uh, abusing him. And he told police that he would not have murdered James Bulger because if I wanted to kill a baby, I'd kill my own, wouldn't I? So that's what we're dealing with here. Not that we had any doubt at all. So Ryan stole things that he neither wanted or needed, and then he'd chuck them into the street. And once he stole some, like, decorating borders from a DIY shop, and on the way home, he just discarded, like, pieces of it. Like, he was... Hansel and Gretel leaving a trail of breadcrumbs. Uh, some neighbors claim they saw him snaring birds into traps in the backyard and, of his home, and one local boy claimed he saw Robert pull the heads off live baby pigeons, which I'm just getting a, an Ozzy Osbourne uh, vibe here. The lack of money his family had did prey on his mind, and when a police officer asked him why he didn't rescue James bleeding on the railway lines, he replied, "'Cause blood stains, doesn't it? And me mother would have to pay more money. That's my attempt at a, I don't know, Cockney accent? I have to practice that a little bit more. But that was not, not too bad going off the cuff. Anne did not believe that her son was a murderer. And um, 
there was a story I read where there were times when she would have to go get Robert because he got picked up by the cops for being truant. And when she would get down to the station to pick him up, she would point at the cell at one of the prison cells and say, see that cell lock him in it. So, um, we're not dealing with, you know, a really great environment here and a lot of trouble, lots and lots of trouble. Um, and now despite the fact that Ryan and Robert, um, th that Robert was abusing Ryan and getting him to do things, they had kind of a weird bond at the same time. They would lie together in bed at night and suck one another's thumbs. And Robert would take him um, on adventures when he would play truant. And he actually once abandoned Ryan at a canal under a bridge. Um, and then I also read that Ryan, while Robert was on trial, began wetting his bed and was setting fires in his bedroom and gaining weight. He actually seemed jealous of the attention Robert was getting, and Anne was afraid he was going to do something equally as terrible as Robert. So now we'll move on to John Venables, and he was born on August 13th, 1982 in Maryside. John was slim in build and taller than Robert, just over five feet. He was pale in complexion and had watery brown, listless eyes. His mother called him hyperactive since even more than Robert, he was scarcely able to sit still. However, Robert grew up under much different conditions than, um, I mean, John grew up under much different conditions than Robert did. John had two siblings. He had Mark, who was 15 at the time of James Bulger's death, and Michelle, age nine, a sister, obviously, because sister. Anyway, you know what? I'm getting off track. Both of them, both Mark and Michelle, ended up in a school for developmentally slow children, and he was raised primarily by his mother and had visitation with his father. And by all accounts, it seems that even though they were, uh, they had their hands full with Mark and Michelle, they were good parents. It, but John definitely felt neglect by his parents because they were so consumed with Mark and Michelle. And um, some people postulated that that would have been uh, a, a reason why he did what he did to James Bulger. And he had horrible, horrible temper tantrums in school, and he would rock back and forth in his desk and make strange sounds to get attention. And he would also bully the other kids. He was considered bright, though, but he had trouble keeping up with his lessons, so he would stay behind while the other kids went out for recess, and then he was teased by the other kids because he was staying behind to catch up on his work that he couldn't seem to finish while they were in class. Um, at his first primary school, the headmistress referred him to a psychologist, and she said that he used to bang his head against the classroom wall to get attention. He would throw things at other children, cut himself on purpose with scissors, and stick paper all over his face. 
and parents complained that he, quote, had attention-seeking behavior. I think that that is probably entirely possible and maybe a cry for help since he's 10 and probably doesn't know how to ask for help. Um, one neighbor always let him in her home when, whenever his mother was out. And she said of John that he always seemed perfectly well behaved. And I think he looked on me as some kind of grandma. He once came to me crying, saying the other boys were picking on him, trying to steal his bike. So now his out, John's outbursts begin to grow more violent as he gets older. And he was suspended for trying to throttle a boy with a ruler John had to be pulled off the boy who had gone red in the face, and the teacher described it as the worst case of violence she had ever witnessed. And uh, shortly thereafter that, dum-dum-dum, John moves to Walton with his family, and that's where he and Robert come together. So... John and Robert met on the playground at school, and they literally bumped into into each other during a fight. And when the fight ended, they were so impressed with, you, with each other's performance that they struck up a friendship. And John was at first a bit wary of Robert. He knew that Robert caused trouble sometimes, and he knew, you know, you probably saw him on the school ground at some point taunting the other kids to get them to chase him. And he didn't like that Robert was, was trouble. And, um, they still became friends otherwise, and they were truant together and they would go steal candy from stores, or as they said in the doc documentary, pinch candy from stores. Um, they jumped out at little old ladies and they climbed into neighbors' backyards and took glee in getting chased out by the owners. That is very daring. Um, and John admitted that he would dare Robert to do something naughty because he knew that Robert would take the dare. So by the autumn of 1992, Robert had missed 49 half days of school and John missed 40. When his mother was called to pick up her son, she would say, see that cell? Lock him in it. Oh, I already said that part, but I'm saying it again. Um, John's father had been warned by other parents not to let his son play with Robert and that there was nothing but trouble there with him and his family, but those warnings went unheeded. And it's important to note that the two boys liked to hang out by the Walton Railway line, and Robert had even built a den there. I can't even... I. I'm having a hard time picturing a den. Like, how did this kid make a den? Out of what? And how long did that take? He probably made Ryan do it. Like, directed the whole thing. Okay. Anyway, going back to the story. So, now I'm going to get into the murder of James. So, the murder of James Bulger happened on Friday, February 12th, 1993. Robert and John had been playing truant from school, and that day John had been particularly excited about going to school because he was going to be allowed to take the class pet gerbils home for the weekend. 
that plan was aborted when he came across Robert outside the schoolyard and convinced him to skip. And so the pair set off. They went to the Strand in Boodle, England, and the Strand was a shopping mall. And it was John who came up with the idea to kidnap a child. They tried for one boy, but the mother found them. Like they, they were able to lure him away, and then the mother went looking for him and found him with Robert and John. And when she confronted them, they ran off. The next boy they tried to lure was James. And he was with his mother at the butcher shop. And while she she had turned to speak to the butcher, and it was like it wasn't even that long, but you know how it is when you have a child and you look away for a second. And parents say that all the time. I looked away for a second and they bolt and that, that happens. So John and Robert were able to get James because in that second that she turned her head to talk to the butcher about an order gone wrong, James wandered off with, John and Robert with no trouble at all. And how they got caught, part of how they got caught was that there was CCTV footage of the boys with James and John holding James's hand out of the mall. And uh, later on, when James is reported missing and people are looking for them and the CCTV footage comes out in the news, James's father is said to have turned to his wife, Denise, and said, oh, he's with two boys. He's going to be fine then. So, I mean, I can't even imagine that awful, crushing feeling later. And also, I just want to say that I do not blame Denise for, for turning just for that minute to talk to the butcher. They sounded like super good parents. And from the little bit I was able to read about them, they seemed like really good parents. And I have... I have always speculated that the myth of a child running away really fast was not true, that how could they just bolt like that and you don't know it until I have actually experienced it. And I have experienced this. I used to work in a daycare at one point in time and it happens. You look away for just a second to say something to somebody and a kid bolts so fast and you just don't even have a minute to be like, what the hell? Um, so I don't blame Denise at all. And I can't even imagine how awful she must have felt. And that she probably carries that with her all the time. So James is with John and Robert and they're heading for the railway, which is two and a half miles away. And James is in distress on his way as he's going along with Robert and James. Um, At one point, Robert and James lifted him up and then dropped him on his head on the cement. And he was wearing a coat, so they tried to cover up the blood that was coming down his face with the hood of his coat. But he's 
two years old. He's ch he's a child. And I mean, he just got dropped on his head. So it's not like he's walking around like, oh, this is fine. No, he's going to be crying. I would cry. James is definitely crying. And this is the part that really kills me is that there were two times that James could have been saved and was almost saved. Uh, there were 38 people. I think it's important to note that passed these three on the way to the railroad and only two of the 38 people questioned these kids as to what was going on. One woman asked what was happening and they, Robert and, and John told her that, Oh, James is just our younger brother and we're just headed home and he's upset. He's hurt himself. And then there was another woman that asked them what they were doing because, you know, James is up, clearly upset and hurt and John and James uh, Robert say, oh, he's lost. He got separated from her mom, from his mom. So we're taking him to the police station. And at that point on their way, the police station was like a few feet away. So, okay, not a few feet, but it was like, I don't know, a quarter of a mile away, very easily walkable. And they said that they were on their way to take James to the, to the police station so that they could reunite him with his mother. And, um, the wolf, the woman did offer to take James herself and she was going to have Robert and John like watch her dog in the car while she took James into the police station. But then she changed her mind because her dog didn't like kids. So she didn't want them to be hurt. So she sent them on their way, assuming that um, they were of their word and taking him to the police station. And I also cannot imagine how she feels. But then I read this one where it said, one woman was said to have seen the three from her window at home and witnessed the boys punching James. And she closed her curtains and did nothing. I can imagine that this woman probably feels like shit and I sort of feel like she should. Um, I don't understand the mentality of somebody being hurt of if even watching it or hearing somebody scream for help and then ignoring it. And I know everybody does that thing where they're like, I'm not going to get involved or, you know, Oh, somebody else will take care of it. And nine times out of 10, that doesn't, well, I don't want to say nine times out of 10, but it doesn't happen a lot. I just recently actually read of this woman being raped in a subway and the subway was packed and nobody did anything. I just, I can't wrap my mind around that. And I have always, I live in an apartment building and I have always felt that like if somebody was trying to break in or something sketchy was going on and I called for my neighbors that they would help me. And I, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if they actually would. I would hope they would at least call 911. I would at least hope that they'd try to help in some way. But again, a woman in broad daylight on a subway getting raped um, with people around. I, it just boggles 
my mind. Okay. So back to that fateful day. Once they're at the railway, John and Robert throw blue paint in James's left eye that they had bought at the mall. They threw stones at him and beat him with bricks. They put batteries in his mouth and possibly his anus. His pants, underpants, and socks had been removed, and his foreskin had been forcibly retracted. Finally, they dropped a 22-pound iron bar on his head. He sustained 10 skull fractures as a result. Alan Williams, the case's pathologist, stated that Bulger suffered so many injuries, 42 in total, that none could be isolated as the fatal blow. Thompson and Venables laid Bulger across the railroad tracks and weighted his head down with rubble in the hopes that a train would hit him and it would make his death appear to be an accident. After they left the scene, his body was cut in half by a train. Bulger's severed body was discovered two days later on February 14th. A forensic pathologist testified that he had died before he was struck by the train. According to Venables, James's last words were, I want my mom. I, that just brings tears to my eyes because I cannot imagine that poor child and how scared he must have been and how he had to spend his last moments on this earth. It, it utterly breaks my heart and it breaks my heart for his parents too. It was a woman who recognized the boys from CCTV footage that led the police to John and Robert's doors, and they were able to connect the boys and arrest them based on DNA evidence from James Bulger's blood on their shoes, as well as the paint that had been thrown in their eye, in his eyes that was also left on their shoes, and there was Robert's distinctive shoe print on James's face. Robert is said to have asked whether the police had taken James to the hospital to get him alive again. And in their interviews that they underwent with the two boys, psychiatrists couldn't find any clues as to why the boys acted so violently. A psychoanalyst and child psychotherapist later said, I think it had something to do with a hatred of vulnerability and babiness in themselves, which they protected projected onto this toddler, they were also able to ascertain that the boys did know right from wrong. It was said that after the arrest, Robert was in a state of post-traumatic shock, haunted by nightmares and flashbacks from the railway tracks, and before the arrest, he had actually been glued to the TV and watching watching the TV constantly for news surrounding James, James's murder. John's interviews with police and psychiatrists at the time of his arrest revealed a frightened and confused boy. He was unable to comprehend the full horror of what he had done, but he was well aware of the consequences, and he cried to his mother as he was questioned. Mum, I never, he said, I never touched him by the hand. I never even touched a baby. I never took a baby. I want to go home. You're going to put me in jail. One of the officers described the moment he confessed to his parents as the police looked on. He ended up sort of curled up on Sue's lap, and he was crying and crying. And they said over and over that they loved him, 
and would always love him. And then really very quickly, he said, I didn't kill him. I did kill him. Sorry. I did kill him. What about his mom? Will you tell her I'm sorry? Now, sidebar, I don't know why they said Sue's lap because his mother's name is Denise. No, duh. That's James Bulger's mother. Ignore me. Okay. So while it was John, it was came out that John wanted to kidnap James, but it was Robert who wanted to kill him. And, but then John ended up carrying out most of the violence. During the trial, Robert became dubbed the one who did not cry. And one investigating police officer said, you could look in the eyes of Robert and knew you were looking at evil. And it's speculated that Robert might have also been responsible for the alleged sexual assault against James. He may have been a victim of his... So they said that he may have been a victim of his own brother and seems to have been acting out with his younger brother, Ryan. During the interrogation, he became flustered by the allegations and worried that John was going to tell the police that Robert played with James's privates. He was worried that people think would think he was a pervert. And while John became upset by the allegations of sexual abuse, he did not implicate himself the way Robert did. Of course, there is no way to know what happened or who did what. In Robert's words, I was there and you weren't. So the boys at this time, aged 11, during the court proceedings, were found guilty. And they became the youngest convicted, youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century. The judge, Mr. Justice Moreland, told Thompson and Venables that they had committed a crime of unparalleled evil and barbarity. In my judgment, your conduct was both cunning and very wicked. The judge sentenced them to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure with a recommendation that they should be kept in custody for very, very many years to come. And it was recommended that they serve a term of eight years in detention centers. Now, first of all, I just want to say at Her Majesty's pleasure. Interesting. Um, also, I when I watched the documentary, um, there were a lot of people that seemed to think that near the time of... Robert and John's uh, parole and ability to, well, their ability to leave and be released from the detention centers, that they didn't feel that the pair had actually served their full punishment. And I don't mean in terms of years, but in the places that they were held. So they didn't feel that the detention center was a place where they were actually getting punished and that they had too many freedoms and um, because they were allowed to go out once in a while, they they were able to like play and you know, take classes and all of that and they didn't feel that was that was good enough of a punishment. And I get where they're coming from. I completely get it, but these boys are also, only 10 years old, and I don't think that they should be placed with other 
adult hardened criminals, despite the severity, and this was quite severe, of their crime. And the re and they they did an interview with one of the um, I don't know leaders or whatever management guy I don't know of one of the um, detention centers, and he was talking about how their goal was to rehabilitate these kids that are sent there so that they can become functioning members of society and work through their trauma and um, get healed and be get out of there and hopefully not do that again because they've been through this program and, you know, they've been instilled with values and they've been straightened out. And the woman that was interviewing him was just to quote the British, she was being a cow about the whole thing. And I just kept, and I actually found myself in a position of feeling a little bit bad for Robert and John because they were 10 year old boys. And not only were they saying that some people saying that they wanted them to go to prison, but they were also like calling for their murder. Okay. And I know that some people are, sorry, just had to take a sip of my, my Diet Coke. Now, I know that some people are eye for an eye and all that, but I, and I'm usually very much um, on the fence about that, but I definitely do not think that a child of 10 whose brain is not even fully developed yet should be sentenced to death and I, or I should say threatened with death. And in the documentary, you do see crowds of people outside of the, of the court calling for them to die and wanting vengeance on James. And I get it because it was a heinous crime, but at the same time, it was very unsettling to see that because those are boys too. And, um, I'm not making excuses for them or their behavior. Not at all. But how much of a monster would you be if you were chanting that you wanted a little boy to die? I just don't think that <laughs> that that makes any sense to me at all. And, you know, this reminds me of when I watched the documentary about Ted Bundy and, like, the day of his conviction, or not conviction, but the day he was going to be put to death, his execution, that's the word I'm looking for, that there were people outside that were selling T-shirts about the affair, and they were, like, having a party, and Ted was said to have said that, um, that they were the crazy ones, not him. And in a sense, and I'm not, I am not at all romanticizing or siding with Ted Bundy, but I have to say that he's kind of right in that instance, because I find something really gross about celebrating someone's death. I, I just, I don't know, maybe I'm too soft-hearted, but celebrating someone's death, no matter how heinous they were, just seems like, it just seems like a line you don't cross. I sort of feel like you can maybe think to yourself, well, he deserved what he got, 
but to actually like celebrate it, to throw a party, that seems quite extreme for me. And I just don't agree with that. Um, so anyway, so they were released in 2001 and Robert went on to actually have, I guess, a pretty good life. And, um, I think I read actually that he has a family. Um, but when they got out, they had to change their names. I think I mentioned that, but I'm mentioning it again. They had to change their names. And, um, actually John went back to prison and he went back because he possessed images of, he was found to have possessed images of sexual abuse against male toddlers. And this was in 2010. And when he was up for parole in 2013, James's father said that John should not be released and should stay in prison. And John agreed with him. He actually told the the parole officers that he did not want to get back on the streets because he was afraid to reoffend. And he actually was released. And then he went back in because he did reoffend in 2017. So, um, so James, James's parents, what happened to them? They did end up splitting up in 1995. They got a divorce and Ralph moved on and married, um, a woman, um, and I couldn't really find much about, um, his second wife, but he did go on to have a daughter with his second wife. And Denise was in the documentary that I watched and she was, um, very active in petitioning the boys to stay in de in the detention center and be sent to prison. So, um, and she looked good, I guess. I mean, as good as a grieving mother can look. Um, so that's, that's the case in a nutshell, <laughs> maybe not so much of a nutshell since it's been 45 minutes. I am going to put the the link to the documentary in the show notes, because I did find it very interesting and I did find it kind of sad and I could definitely tell it felt like the Fox news of, um, Britain, Britain. And, um, and I probably just alienated a ton of listeners by just saying that, but I said it. I said what I said. Um, anyway, I just want to say thank you for tuning in. And um, I already have a few cases that I've begun to research. And um, I hope to make this a regular thing and have the next episode out within the next 10 days. So thank you for listening in. And I'm sorry if it if you had to leave because it got a little grisly there in the middle. And I don't blame you because it's a it's a really tough case. And um, I think that this will be a tough subject to handle in a podcast. But I mean, we're here for the true crime, right? So have a great week and I'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.